You're listening to the last episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. I recently saw a headline in the climate news that said, Denial is out, alarm is in. The story reported new findings that Americans are now almost four times more likely to say they're distressed about the climate crisis than to be dismissive of it. For those who aren't aware of the trends, this marks a massive shift in public attitude. Just six years ago, the ratio of deniers to those who said they were alarmed about climate change was roughly one to one. It reminds me of that old saying that things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could. But it's a mixed victory on some levels, because the heightened concern doesn't always translate into action. In many cases, it simply becomes paralysis, and a good deal of blame lies with the overwhelmingly negative way we tell climate stories. The number one way people learn about climate change is through the media, and according to data from journalism research, 85% of that is bad news. We rarely hear about solutions that are working or the demand for change coming from every corner of the world, or the pockets of nature that are rapidly recovering when given a chance. That makes it hard to imagine ways we could participate in a story that's about solutions and healing, let alone envision a world we actually want to live in. How can you create a better future when you're unsure there will even be a future? That question may sound exaggerated, but studies have actually shown that many children today believe the world will end in their lifetime. I think about how different that is from my own childhood, since I can still remember a time when all I knew about nature was that it was wondrous. A living planet filled with trees to climb and streams patrolled by dragonflies. Bats that sometimes got into our house, an early morning frost on the grass you could skate across in street shoes. Those memories inspired me to study the natural world and ultimately go into climate work. But for many kids today, their formative views of nature may be dominated by wildfire evacuations and record-breaking heat waves, stories of oceans choked with plastic and wild animals that will disappear before they grow up. So we need to think more carefully about the kinds of stories we tell in this era of crisis and opportunity. In the previous episode, I highlighted some of the problems with stories that just recycle empty mantras about hope and why hope alone can't mobilize the transformation we need. But despair won't get us there either. In fact, entrenched interests protecting the status quo use despair and apathy to prevent change. They're the ones that benefit when we conclude that problems are unsolvable, that nothing will make a difference, or that it's too late to act on climate anyway. That's why the futurist Alex Steffen says that optimism is a political act. His statement can seem counterintuitive to those in the climate movement who've endured years of setbacks that come with this work. If you've played the game long enough, optimism can seem like a delusion that makes us easy to manipulate, 
which is why we tend to think of cynics as the rebels and free thinkers, the ones who aren't duped by reassuring messages that it will all be okay. But Stefan turns that assumption on its head, asking, what if cynicism is the real obedience? After all, when no one believes in a better future, despair becomes the norm, and the only winners are those who profit from maintaining our fossil fuel economy. Maybe it's optimism, at least a version that's not naive or passive, that creates a more revolutionary mindset, since the optimist believes things could be different, that change is possible and worth fighting for. To an oil executive, those are dangerous beliefs. Of course, maintaining hope and optimism is easier said than done, and I know as well as anyone why we often lapse back into hopelessness, especially when we watch years of effort crushed by the powers preventing change. That's why staying engaged and resilient requires us to master the art of living between two worlds and accepting uncertainty as the defining condition of our times. James Baldwin once said, no one can possibly know what is about to happen. It is happening each time for the first time, for the only time. In this episode, we dive headfirst into the realm of uncertainty and consider some of the ways we are strengthened by embracing the unknown. Uncertainty is not incompatible with hope. On the contrary, uncertainty may be the precondition that enables us to have any hope in the first place. That insight seems to be one thing missing from Alex Steffen's defense of optimism which is why I prefer Rebecca Solnit's take on hope as a way to move past our conventional binary categories. Optimists believe that all will end well, while pessimists focus on disappointment to dismiss every possibility as imperfect or inadequate. But hope, as Solnit writes, locates itself in the premise that we don't know what will happen, and in that spaciousness of uncertainty is still room to act. She goes on to argue that when you recognize uncertainty, you recognize that you may be able to influence the outcomes, you alone or you in concert with several million others. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimist and pessimist. Optimists believe it will all be fine without our involvement. Pessimists take the opposite position. Both excuse themselves from acting. Hope is the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, or who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. We may not know them afterward either, but they matter all the same, and history is full of people whose influence was most powerful after they were gone. In addition to providing the conditions for hope, Uncertainty also reinforces the great lessons of interconnection. To acknowledge climate science is to acknowledge that every person's actions and emissions reverberate in innumerable known and unknown ways, shaping the world for centuries beyond our own lives and across realms that span from sea level rise and agriculture to forest fires, infectious disease, and flooded cities. This is precisely why conservative climate deniers are so repelled by the implications of ecology, since ecology undermines their belief in rugged individualism and every-man-for-himself ethics. 
such a worldview cannot tolerate the tenets of radical entanglement. As Solnit puts it, if everything is connected, then the consequences of every choice and act and word have to be examined, which we see as love in action, and they see as impingement upon absolute freedom, freedom being another word for no limits on the pursuit of self-interest. Most recently, this tension has been playing out through the coronavirus pandemic, which further underscores the dangers of failing to recognize how deeply embedded our lives and well-being are, not only with other humans, but with all life in the natural world. In the end, the coronavirus is a symptom of a larger planetary health crisis. As we keep sucking resources out of the natural world, mowing down tropical forests and consuming all the soils and minerals and fossil fuels, we're also sucking viruses out of other species living in those wild places we destroy, and then drawing those viruses into our bodies. This sheds light on a blind spot that has exacerbated both the pandemic and the climate crisis. As philosopher Emmanuel Cochia once described it, we inhabit not the earth, but the atmosphere, which is like a sea of life, and nothing swimming in that sea can be biologically isolated. When the pandemic hit in 2020, environmental professor Kate Brown expanded on Cochia's insights by tracing ways that pesticides from tropical banana plantations end up in the Great Lakes of North America and how the spores that caused the outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the UK last decade may have been stirred up by dust storms in the Sahara. But those same storms also deliver phosphorus to the Amazon rainforest, which is crucial for its health. Meanwhile, the air that helps pollinate our plants also transports radioactive particles and viruses and wildfire. There is radical unpredictability in these unique combinations across time and space and forms of life. But one of the constants we can know is they defy notions of isolation and individualism. I sometimes think of our climate emotions as circulating in a similar way, with hope and outrage and anxiety sweeping through communities like pollen or wildfire smoke. Studies in psychology have shown that emotions are contagious and can go viral through both face-to-face -face and virtual encounters. Yet a deep uncertainty un underpins all of this, since the anger that consumes one person becomes the impetus for transformation in another. The hope that spurs one group to action makes another group complacent, or the grief we view as a negative state to avoid becomes the condition of insight and compassion for countless others. The most profound example, I think, is the widespread anxiety among youth, which many commentators have labeled as a mental health disorder. Yet that distress may have been the very thing that finally focused the world's attention on our climate emergency in 2019, the year that youth climate strikes exploded across the world and activated historical numbers of people who'd spent the last decade pushing climate issues to the side. In particular, Black and Indigenous and Latinx youth, along with other marginalized kids who saw their futures being robbed, suddenly became figureheads in the climate movement. And that wasn't despite, but because they gave voice to their climate depression and fear, or spoke openly about suffering from climate disasters. Unlike scientists who'd spent the last 30 years just explaining the data, these youth talked about climate threats from direct personal experience, 
hitting a nerve with the public by revealing a growing collective trauma. Those difficult emotions weren't an aberration in the movement, but the very source of its strength, and they resonated with people across the world in ways we'd never seen before. These unexpected twists in the plot should embolden us, because they remind us that feeling maladjusted or depressed about our world can be the opposite of mental illness and dysfunction. As researcher Panu Pinkala has argued, eco-anxiety is a moral emotion. It is based on an accurate appraisal of the severity of the ecological crisis. That insight applies to other forms of maladjustment as well, whether we're confronting racism or violence or inequality. Martin Luther King Jr. even went so far as to say, the salvation of the world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. His words make sense, because who else is going to take to the streets to protest all this destruction? So we can take some encouragement from the fact that eco-anxiety and grief are on the rise, because at their core, they express a collective desire to live in a more just and compassionate world. Maybe we could even think of climate anxiety as a kind of superpower, a signal that goes off to tell us something's wrong and needs to be addressed, even while others are sleepwalking through the crisis because their alarm isn't tuned as well. Of course, it would be a pretty useless power if we became frozen in place when those signals went off. But one way to avoid getting stuck is to remember that feelings are not our destiny. We can experience despair or fear and still do the work in attending to the world's needs, so long as we refuse to allow difficult emotions to become an excuse for abandoning our obligations. At the beginning of this series, I talked about what I learned of grief from losing my father. What I didn't mention was how he died, which is intimately related to the larger story of environmental loss in our time. My father had been a pilot in Vietnam, and like countless American troops and innocent Vietnamese people swept into the war, he was exposed to Agent Orange, a deadly herbicide the U.S. dropped to defoliate the forests of Southeast Asia and strip away the cover people used for hiding. Growing up, I never directly asked my dad how it felt to be assigned to that job. But I didn't have to, because I knew it ate him alive across all the years that followed, first spiritually and then physically when the poisons he was ordered to drop on Vietnam's forests and people showed up as a rare and deadly cancer in his own body. You always hear those quotes that what we do to the earth we ultimately do to ourselves. But those words never feel more real than when you sit next to a dying parent and hold their hand as they struggle to take their final breath, tumors growing uncontrollably through every region of the body. And this wasn't the only environmental assault my family's experienced. One year to the day after watching my dad die, just as I was writing the words for this episode, my mother and stepfather fled a wildfire for the second time in five years. And this time, instead of just getting close, it burned right across their property, incinerating the oak trees, melting their water tank and solar panels, turning the garden and sheds to ash, along with everything else except the house standing in the midst of a cleared burn perimeter they'd made earlier that year. 
And yet, despite these personal upheavals and the persistent despair I confront in my students and climate colleagues, I know that I live on an island of relative safety and privilege. I'm white, I'm educated, I have health insurance and a job that lets me work from home during this pandemic. Some of those privileges may pertain to other listeners following this podcast. Let us remember that people across the global South and marginalized communities in affluent countries are on the true front lines of climate chaos and would give anything to trade their losses for ours. That is why this is our sacred work. Everyone alive today exists at a moment that will decide the fate of life on this planet for centuries and millennia to come. Even though we didn't ask for this role, our generation will determine what vanishes and what remains. If you can act, you have an astonishing power that no human actors have held before this present moment. Because you, all of us, can choose to be the seed of life and possibility that shepherds our bruised but still viable world into the coming age. That power should make us humble, but also motivate us beyond all limit. Given everything that's happened since this podcast launched, it's hard to know how to close our first season. No one can predict how any of today's words will resonate in the days ahead, especially in a time when every day we seem to wake up to a world that feels unrecognizable. So I chose a passage that predates our current moment, whose words seem timeless because their wisdom has little to do with the details of external events and everything to do with the internal resilience we summon in times of adversity. The words are from poet Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Here's what she wrote. My friends, do not lose heart. We were made for these times. For years, we have been learning, practicing, been in training for, and just waiting to meet on this exact plane of engagement. I grew up on the Great Lakes, and recognize a seaworthy vessel when I see one. Regarding awakened souls, there have never been more able vessels in the waters than there are right now across the world. And they are fully provisioned and able to signal one another as never before in the history of humankind. Look out over the prow. There are millions of boats of righteous souls on the waters with you. In any dark time, there is a tendency to veer towards fainting over how much is wrong or unmended in the world. Do not focus on that. There is a tendency, too, to fall into being weakened by dwelling on what is outside your reach, by what cannot yet be. Do not focus there. That is spending the wind without raising the sails. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul, to assist some portion of this poor suffering world, will help immensely. It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. What is needed for dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, 
but only a small, determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth gale. When a great ship is in harbor and moored, it is safe. There can be no doubt. But that is not what great ships are built for.